Yeah, so you got uh, ears over eyes or eyes over ears or head over heels or head over feet. Is that Alanis Morissette? I have no idea. Explain the concept to me of head over heels because head over heels is normally the way this thing works, ain't it? Hello and welcome to the QNT Podcast. My name is Caleb Killian. I am the co-host of the Critics Anonymous Podcast and usually serve as producer for this program while Rush Schmidt interviews a guest. But today, in our first podcast for 2020, we're turning the tables a bit and I'm interviewing Russ. Join us today as we talk about the intersection of objectivity and subjectivity how a mentor teacher continues to impact his life 30 years after his passing, and even why musicians playing in parallel might not be as good a thing as it sounds. And off we go. I'm joined now by Russell Smith, director of the Valley Jazz Cooperative and coordinator of education for music serving the word ministries. Welcome, Russ. Thank you, Caleb. So let's talk a little bit about why we wanted to flip the script and be interviewed instead of interviewing someone else. Well, I think my thoughts were along these lines, Caleb. We're entering a season here in Arizona where it's competitive season for band programs, orchestra programs, uh, obviously jazz programs. And I've done a lot of adjudicating and uh, clinician work within the state. And a lot of times the band directors get very focused on outcomes, and I'm more of a process guy. So I wanted to get a chance to speak with you today about that, about process versus outcome, about trying to take something that is inherently subjective, like art, and in this case, creative art, spontaneously creative art through improvisation, and how do you assign a number or a score to that? So I was hoping we'd get a chance to, to go down that road. That's actually really cool. Um, I, I've i kind of lived a jazz-adjacent uh, life uh, for most of my life. I have a uh, father, Dwight Killian, who's a prominent jazz bassist in the Phoenix area, so I've, I've kind of grown up through the jazz community. And likewise, um, I was a saxophone player uh, all through elementary school, middle school, high school. Uh, so I had a lot of uh, time in that kind of, uh, competition world. Um, and I find it really fascinating. You know, I, I think it's a really good subject to talk about, um, to, to kind of, I guess, talk about the, the competitive nature of what that is. I, I think I fall into the same process area, uh, that you were talking about. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that about, uh, how you see the, the kind of process of students through that, that kind of competition mentality being the more important thing, maybe a little bit of how some band directors have definitely experienced that there is a, uh, a focus deeply on what the outcome is. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you get that superior? Did you get that distinction with the superior marking? You know, um, a lot of times I, I have felt like that was the ultimate end goal rather than seeing students get to a place of completion musically. So, right. Can you, can you dive deeper into a, a little bit? Absolutely. I think for me, I want to start with a caveat that is charitable to band directors because I understand that they're under a lot of pressure and in some cases support from a principal 
or support from a district superintendent might literally spring from, okay, but how much are you crushing it? You know, how, how well are you doing? And you're asking for more money in next year's budget, but you haven't delivered superiors or superiors with distinction. I do think there are some schools in which the, the band directors feel that pressure. So what I'm about to say um, would otherwise sound uncharitable to those directors. And I just want to be clear. I recognize that there are some unique pressures on music educators. Having said that, I feel very strongly that you can't take something that is inherently subjective and ascribe final value to it that is a number. Um, and I and I really struggle with that. I, I've spoken with people, including you previously, about the fact that I think there's an intersection between music competitions and those things in sport that aren't really well-defined. We know that Usain Bolt runs faster than everybody, and you can time it, and he wins. You know that if a basketball score is 100 to 97, the team with 100 won. Those are clear. You start looking at figure skating or perhaps floor exercise from gymnastics, and these things become a lot more subjective, not objective. And that's what music is, too. And and so I, I get a little concerned when I see a band director, you know, flipping out that they merely got a superior and not a superior with distinction. And, and when those moments happen, I feel like we've lost our way a little bit because, as I already said, I'm a process guy, not an outcome guy. And if you're only focused on outcome, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. The best you can do is meet the bar of the perfect aspirations you have Um Whereas if you think about the long path that students are on, maybe they've had the music for three months. Maybe they got the music in, you know, November around Thanksgiving time once marching band season ends and they start working on it. Well, think about the fantastic work they've made over three months. And if you get merely a superior and not a superior with distinction, to me, that doesn't negate three work, uh, three months of great work together. Uh, and so I get a little little concerned when, when we try and take the subjective and exclusively ascribe objective uh, metrics to it. I find that really interesting. There's a couple of points that you uh, kind of hit on in there that I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into. Um, the the process i think that's really fascinating you brought up uh kind of the the metric of sports and just uh you know a basketball game if you win 90 97 you know to whatever 90 the person with 97 wins but there is a process that i think that still happens with athletes in there that then measures into um success on the court for the game you mm-hmm. know and i think sometimes in music at least in an a couple of experiences that I've had in the school realm of process is do have, I guess the question is, is has you, have you experienced um, band directors not putting enough value on the process because it might be detrimental to the outcome? And what I, what I mean by that is I've, I've, I've seen experiences where maybe the success of the children means putting them in a situation that's uncomfortable musically, giving them music that's maybe a little bit out of their range of skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but that challenges them and hopefully excites them to try and achieve that. Now, does that mean by the date of uh, the jazz competition or whatever that you know ends up being, that that's going to be the best translated? 
Maybe not. Maybe that does mean that you don't get that highest mark. Um, but it it does give the process of the children growing musically mm-hmm. the best chance. Have you experienced maybe band directors doing the opposite of that? Maybe it's not the most challenging musically, but it it gives them the option of we can have a chance to go into a competition like that and get the mark. Have you have you experienced anything like that? Yeah, I've experienced both sides of that. Sure, you you can see a band that will. Uh, play repertoire that I would say is educational market repertoire. And and what I mean by that is it's not historically significant jazz charts, but it's music written in the style of historically significant charts with simpler rhythms, lower ranges for the brass and so forth. And if it's a young band, you know, junior high school band, sure, that's probably what they ought to be playing. But sometimes you'll see a band that is capable of more kind of living in the uh, in the more simplified realm of music that eh, kind of underachieves. It has a goal educationally. It doesn't necessarily have a deep goal musically. So I've seen underprogramming before to assure higher grades. I've seen examples of the opposite where people will reach and pick something that perhaps their band isn't capable of doing. And if it's if it's done with the intent of helping the students grow, exposing them to some adventuresome art and uh, and from a difficulty level a little beyond their capability. If that's the intent, I'm actually fine with that. If, if the intent is to help people grow, that's great. If the intent is merely the vanity of the person choosing the repertoire, I'm less cool with that. And I'll give you one specific example. When I when I lived in Ohio, I, I taught at Bowling Green State University for a time there. And I would see a band that would play Malaguena by Bill Holman once every four years, basically, you know, once the ninth graders who'd played it had flushed out as seniors, okay, it's time to play Malaguena again. So there was this director, and I was there for 13 years, so I, I got to see these things cycle through. And so I'd see at festivals this director program Malaguena again and again and again, but he programmed it whether or not he had the horses that could play the chart. It's just like, I love Malaguena, we're doing it. Uh, Well, okay, but if you have trumpet players who can't hit those screamy high notes, why are we doing this? Ultimately, it just sounds bad, and it's. uh, I think it would be deflating to a trumpet section to get handed a chart where everything has so many ledger lines. Their immediate impulse is, I could practice this for the next six months at the expense of all my other studies, and I'm still never going to be able to play that chart. That's super deflating. So I think the intent of the director has to be uh, clear and defined that it's about trying to make the band grow, compel them to grow by picking stuff that's just a little beyond their reach. But also it can't be uh, driven by vanity or just even thoughtless desire. The director I'm talking about, he, he might not have been driven by vanity, just convenience of like, you know, yep, it's been four years, time to play Malaguena again. And you get into a rhythm to program it. Okay, because you want the students to hear this great Bill Holman chart. But if you don't have the horses, it's not the year to do it. You wait until you have a, a screaming trumpet section to do a chart like that. So um, I think there needs to be a lot of thought and greater intent in the programming. And that'll help shape whether or not... It's a growth-oriented thing 
or if you're under programming with easy charts, then clearly it's it's not a growth oriented thing. It's a, I want to get a superior at this festival sort of approach. No, that's really fascinating. I I I think I've had experiences on both ends of that. You know, Have that's you? been that's been really kind of a, a interesting thing to go through. I, I was going to ask you um, in in the idea of programming for your band. I was a, a little bit in a unique situation, and I wanted to get your opinion on how you would approach this as a uh, as an educator and maybe a suggestion path uh, suggested way for uh, educators now. Um, my freshman year of high school, I was lucky enough to make the top jazz band at my high school. It was a uh, fairly good jazz band, uh, had right. historically had a good record and, and stuff like that. And I was really blessed with the opportunity to take on the second, second tenor role. Awesome. Um, which was really cool. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the band director left after my freshman year. Uh, and we, we kind of had a little bit of a quick dine, downward spiral in the music mm-hmm. department at the at the uh, high school. Um, not that it was bad, but it just uh, band shrunk a little bit. We had uh, a lot of different changes that just took place. And just musically, there was a lot of challenges with that. Um, and so one of the battles that uh, I felt like the directors that I had after my freshman year had to kind of continuously battle. I uh, was able to take the first tenor spot in my sophomore year for the top jazz band. And, um, you know, was a, a top player in my band. Um, right. Wasn't a fantastic player, but in that current uh, position in Spectrum, I was kind of a top player mm-hmm. um, type of thing. And so I felt like uh, the band director was kind of always in this weird situation. There was a couple of top key players that were uh, really pushing to do something special. And then the rest of the band was considerably in skill sets a little bit lower. Um, and so how would you suggest a band director who has maybe a couple of students that are excelling well mm-hmm. um, and maybe a band as a whole that's a little bit middle of the road, how would you uh, you know, advise them to go about programming uh, to both help challenge those students that are excelling uh, but honestly, probably are just one or two of those students in the band, but still give opportunity um, to not let the rest of the band feel deflated because maybe the musical choices are too hard mm-hmm. for the rest of the band to really feel effective in playing. Right. That's a really good question. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that the director discern the difference between music that might be played in a competition and music that's going to be played in the high school auditorium for the parents because the parents are going to be a very friendly, loving audience. And uh, in that sort of non-competitive setting, I would hope that the director wouldn't just give the golden child all the solos, as it were. If, if you have yeah one or two um, golden children in the band, okay, great. And maybe those want to be people you feature on a couple of the three charts you play at a festival appearance, a competitive festival appearance. But when you're playing in the high school, man, you, you're never going to develop the other players if the golden children keep getting all the solo feature pieces and, and the improvisation space on ensemble charts and so forth. So I think you really got to have a, a, a broad intent of, well, this is music we're doing for festival and this is music we're doing for the hometown crowd. 
And I'm talking from a perspective of a jazz program where I would hope that they practice more than once a week. Um, but I know, for instance, my, my son went to Desert Vista High School and there Mike Krill does the big bands and they only meet once a week. So, so it might not be possible to have separate books ready to go, as it were, sort of. Right. Well, we're doing these six charts right now. These three are for festival. We'll use one of them and th- the other three as a four-tune set when we play alongside the concert band in our high school auditorium. I know not everybody has the luxury of, of rehearsing more than once a week, so I need to clarify that a little bit. Um, but if there's time to get more music together than you're playing, and certainly there are advantages to making young people sight-read a different chart every week anyway, um, I'd say that it would be great in a festival setting, okay, you have a great trumpeter, fine. Go find an awesome flugelhorn feature, you know, a ballad, and that's the middle tune on your set. And maybe the opener is an up-tempo bebop thing. You got a great tenor player. Well, that's the person who gets to solo on rhythm changes if that's what the chart is or whatever. So I think you find ways to put the spotlight a little bit more on the uh, outstanding players in festival settings. But in non-competitive settings, you got to feature everybody in the band because they're never going to grow unless they get the chance to try. No, that's really fascinating. I I, I think I mimic that same kind of idea. I, I would love um, almost two books, you know, almost the idea of... Right. The here's your go play for grandma and mom book, right. and let everybody have a solo. Let everybody get featured, and and, and really bolster everybody in that. Um, and then there maybe there is a festival book, and that could be really hard. I know that scheduling for music programs these days are really um, you know changing and varying, and right. some of that's good and some of that's bad. Um, but I I think that idea uh, kind of has its own elegance to it. That's, re- that's really cool. Can I jump in? Of course. There's yeah. one other thing I'd add to that. Cause if, if you're able to keep the two books going, it could be that the friendly home field advantage music, the comfort food of music, the mashed potatoes of music. Here, I like that. Yeah. It could be that that's music that's on a two year rotation. So oh, yeah. if someone makes the top band as a freshman, like, like you did playing second tenor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, maybe they play that twice in their high school auditorium over the span of four years. There's nothing wrong with that. And so a preponderance of rehearsal time might be spent with the more challenging music that is performed for festivals. And that's going to be different every year on at least a four-year cycle. Right. Um, but it could be that, that, yes, the home field, home cooking band repertoire, it, that doesn't necessarily have to be four years worth of stuff because there will be – some institutional memory if you play a favored chart. Let's let's just toss out uh, Neil Hefty's Lil Darlin. You know, yeah. you play that every two years, maybe a third of the band will have been in the top band two years before. Well, and likewise, I think even in my case, it would give an opportunity to play music differently. I was second mm-hmm. tenor the first year. You know, uh, hopefully two years later, you're in a position where maybe your first tenor, you're taking on new music. Maybe there's a solo with it. So it's still, it it still almost like presents a challenge, you know, even though, yes, I've played the tune before or something, but. And you know how it goes and you know how the director wants the articulations and the dynamics. So, so the, the point is it can come together quicker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea that should definitely be considered more. Um, I did want to. I want to go back to something that you said in a previous statement, 
and this is actually something that I have not even thought about, but I thought it was unbelievably insightful. You talked about the school pressures that are put on band directors mm -hmm. because of the achievements. And, and something that I kind of thought about with that is a lot of times um, when you're talking about principals, vice principals, the people, the higher ups, you mm -hmm. know, of a, a school setting, the decision makers, I guess, um, they come probably more traditionally more times than not from something of a math, English, social studies background. Right. All of their progress to, you know, achievement standards are, I work with my kids every day, and it is a little bit more of an athletic setting. I work with my kids every day. They take a test at the end of the year. High test scores equal good things for the school, right. but it also shows the progression of the students. Same thing with athletes. We go to practice every day. You get a little bit better. You start winning more matches. You start winning more games. So there's a, there's a progression there that I think is a little bit um, similar in that. I think the uh, the problem is is they always see that end goal as kind of the the big highlight reel, right? And and I think in music, the obviously an end goal, a good comp a competition score is always good, but the highlight reel com really comes from the success of the player, mm -hmm. um, them finally being able to solo with confidence, them right. being able to take on harder and more difficult music, seeing them dive deeper into their musical experience. Those are highlights that you're not going to see on a, a competition floor, but I think really are the true successes of mm -hmm. what music is. And so it just made me kind of think is, do the higher ups, the, the people, the decision makers, do they need to be brought in deeper into the kind of musical realm, the, the, the band atmosphere to understand that more. Because I do, I do worry sometimes that they just look at that end goal. They're, they're in their office. They say, okay, what'd you, what'd you get last year? Oh, well, you didn't get a good enough score. You're not going to get as much money rather than really going into the classroom and seeing that the director is making significant achievements with their students. And yes, maybe that's not, a superior with distinction from the last competition, right. but uh, Jimmy in second trumpet is now first trumpet and is excelling ex exceedingly well. I, I think there there are small victories that sometimes don't get highlighted. So, yeah, I just wanted to like extrapolate a little bit on that kind of idea. Just the idea of the relationship between the band director and the front office. Like how how do how would you ex suggest to the band director to either approach that differently, approach that more healthy like, mm -hmm. you know, like what what's what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think certainly uh administrators need to be open to receiving input from arts advocacy folks. Um and I, I don't want to just make this about music in this sense. I think we need to think more holistically about all the arts. Um, it's interesting. I just had this conversation yesterday with Mike Lake. He's a Phoenix-based alto trombonist. Uh, I've gigged with him at the Nash before and other locations. Great trombonist. I believe his website is altobone.com for friends who want to check it out. And he was interviewing me for a project he has going just yesterday. And we ended up getting on the topic of STEM versus STEAM. So Interesting. Pe people talk a lot about STEM, and that's going to be science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And sometimes people want to push the STEAM button, which inserts arts into those other four as being a critical part 
of what uh, a foundational education should include or where our money should go to support certain aspects or avenues for education. Um, but, but the thing that I said to Mike was early on, I was pretty cynical about the STEAM thing. I thought, well, it makes a clever catchphrase, but I'm not necessarily totally into it in that you are taking the most subjective thing, arts, and sticking it into completely objective stuff like uh, engineering and technology, science, and math, sure. you know. And, and so for me, it wasn't always a, a great fit. I was a little, yeah, I was cynical about it the first time I heard people saying, it shouldn't be STEM, it should be STEAM. And now a few years later, I actually completely agree with that only from the standpoint that it puts back in the frontal lobe of administrators, of bean counters, of legislators, or whoever might, you know, fund budgets for things, that arts education is critical. And there have been so many great creative minds in technology. The innovators in technology aren't completely objective. They have to be subjective in their thinking to come up with innovations, to be creative enough to try something that others haven't tried before. So for me, I feel real strongly that it needs to be, uh, you need to have a relationship with your administration. If you are a, a rank and file arts teacher, you need to have a relationship with the administration that allows for a healthy dialogue and that the administrator is open to learning more about the value of an arts education, open to accepting the subjective topics like music, it's really more difficult to put an objective metric to. And I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it's an intentional tangent, which is what my favorite type. Questions so, and tangents. That's, that's right. Uh, intentional tangents. That's right. So I uh, a couple years ago, I got asked by Adam Risch, who is the director of bands at Mountain View High School, and at the time he was the Aboda Vice President for Jazz here okay. in the state of Arizona, and he asked me to redo a metric for the jazz ensemble competitions that we do in state. And the thing was, they had just been using the wind ensemble concert band metric for jazz ensemble competitions here in the state, and there's two big problems with that. One. Obviously, that metric isn't going to cover improvisation at all. Wow. That's, that's not going to happen in concert bands, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. And then the other thing is, what about like elements that are particular to jazz, like rhythm section playing or swing feel or things like that? Those aren't covered in a concert band metric as well. So it sounds a little bit like I'm anti-metric, and I'm not, because I actually was the guy who updated and created a metric for the state of Arizona for jazz ensemble adjudication. So I'm down with that. I'm willing to articulate why one jazz group plays better than another jazz group. I, I don't want to seem like I'm completely anti-objectivity. I'm not. But I don't want that to be the driving force behind why we choose to do something. Otherwise, every band in the state should play the simplest repertoire possible 
and crush the heck out of it and let the best improviser in the band be the only one who gets to solo on all three tunes in your set. That leads to some really growth-stunting experiences for the other 17 members of a big band. So I I am not anti-objectivity. It's just that turning it back, this is the conclusion of the tangent, turning it back to the relationship between an arts educator and a school's administration, there needs to be a dialogue on what things can be objective and what things we have to live with being subjective. And to say that, yes, a certain trumpet player in the band has gone from being a very timid player to a more assertive player, I think that has impacts and implications to that person's real life that have nothing to do with playing trumpet. And I think that's important, critical growth that needs to be valued recognized and uh, and and uh, emphasized from the perspective of a school that, okay, maybe they got an 87 instead of an 86 on a chemistry test, meh, you know, I don't, whatever. That, 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 that is something that is objective, but I don't care. 87 versus 86, I just don't care. Oh, this person has more confidence today than they had four months ago. I really care about that. And that's living in a subjective world. But to me, that should be a priority in the educational process. We aren't putting kids through high school in all these different classes to have the end game be, you know, well, you got the best grades, therefore you're going to get the job that pays the most money. There's no you know, no metric that defines uh, a class placement from top to bottom as being a hundred percent with a hundred percent certitude. You know who's going to succeed and who's going to fail. There are a lot of people who are academic achievers in high school that kind of taper off for various reasons. Uh, many of them social, um, and and. Uh, from the perspective of some outsiders, maybe they would underachieve in their post-collegiate years. Who knows? I've also known that you know some of the fellows I went to high school with and some of the young women I went to high school with, there'd be people who were not at the top of the class who far exceeded you know, those who were near the top of the class. I, I have a friend who really high school didn't work for him at some level, and he ended up pursuing his education all the way through a doctorate. And he's a super smart and super successful human being, but he was the kid who was living on 78s as his grades, you know, in high school. So I just think there's a lot of things that cannot be objectively uh, uh, identified with certitude when you're talking about a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old. But I am certain that growth in confidence, in creativity— Um, in intellectual curiosity that you want to learn more. I think those things are awesome, and those don't fit in a metric that well. I 110% agree with so much of that. Um, I'm going to go off on a a small tangent, but very intentional as well. I, um, I completely agree with the idea that confidence almost should be a metric in my brain. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I look about that, I look at that and I I just see that as such an important aspect. I I look back at my kind of high school career. I was a B student, A-ish, you know, high B, low A type of thing. Mm -hmm. I definitely was, you know, very uh, good in school, but I'm not, I was never valedictorian, had no aspirations to be that, you know. But the thing that I look back on is, 
getting an 87 in my math class at some point in time had no effect on my life. Mm -hmm. Learning to be confident in front of a large number of people in an auditorium had a huge effect on my life. Right. You know, and so, yes, maybe the metric is not there to actually validate that to some degree. And I understand that there's budgets and all of that stuff when it comes to music and all that stuff. But there is something to be said that I think arts, and I love, I, I actually never heard STEM and STEAM. Uh, okay. I love the idea of STEAM purely for the fact that I think it adds in the one element to STEM that was not there. I think arts add the ability to think creatively, to think um, in multiple directions, to not have a very focused, single-minded view on things. It gives you confidence. It gives you the ability to move into other things, to think uh, and multitask, although multitasking is kind of a weird thing. But, you know, just it gives a lot of elements that I think contribute to the life of an individual outside of just know this formula, know what happened here, know how to do these things. It, it, it digs deeper into some of those things. And so I think... Um, just the the thing that I would love to see from uh, faculty, from administration, from from all of that is a little bit of a focus on uh, the individual in in what they do well, and how can we promote them to do well. You know, the, I've never been an English person. I, mm -hmm. I'm horrible at writing. I don't like to do that. You know, so writing fictional stories for English and having to do reports on books and all of, I never wanted to read. That was not, that was not something I was good at. You mm -hmm. know, I get into a professional environment. I figured out that I have a knack for business and a love for learning that type of thing. I've read more books because there are things about that. There are books about things that I like reading about. They gain me knowledge. If I would have known that in high school, it just makes me rethink, like, would my trajectory have been a little different? Right. Would I have done better in reading? Because it's, you know, I as much as I like 1984, I'm not going to read that on a weekend. But if it gives me knowledge into something that I can apply to my life, I might have read that. That might have been deeply meaningful to me. Right. You know, and so I just, I, I wonder for students if um, opportunity in that aspect would be, uh, beneficial. I, I I know a number of kids from high school who are exactly like you know the individual you described. Unbelievably brilliant, can operate in the world better than anybody, better than anybody I've ever seen. But they're not they're not people that are going to go and be able to just sit in a classroom and learn well. They're right. they're very experiential. They need uh, kind of the world to feed back on them so that they can have an effect. You know. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think it would be really interesting to see that relationship between uh, specifically what you said, the arts, uh, kind of areas and maybe the front off office change a little bit and maybe the, the metric, if you want to put something to it changes, mm -hmm. maybe the metric is not, well, you did well at a band competition, but maybe the metric is we invested heavily into a number of students and we're seeing a, dynamic change in them. We're seeing a, a life change in them that seems to be a progression towards something really good. Right. I think ultimately that will take a greater commitment from 
legislatures and uh, other institutions that will support education financially from this critical aspect. In the STEM classes, let's take the A out of STEAM and go back to STEM. In the STEM classes, ultimately, when class size gets too big, there's less opportunity for teachers to take an active role in cultivating the success of their students, of mentoring their students. It's more of an assembly line experience. So I'm not trying to get particularly political here. I don't want the podcast to take a political slant, but I think that we talk about American success stories and people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and all these great uh, cliches. But at the end of the day, it's going to take support for education to let that happen. And I think, you know, class sizes impact the success of students. I talked about intellectual curiosity. Well, if the teacher's overwhelmed and they're not bringing their best self to teaching, and from a student's perspective, students can sniff that out right away that like, oh, this oh, teacher's of kind of phoning it in. Or, oh, this teacher's phoning it in this week. Maybe they're having a bad week. Um, I'm reminded of a teacher for one of my two kids. I'll try and keep this as anonymous as possible. But one of my two kids would come home and tell me the current status of this teacher's uh, marriage and then disillusion of marriage and then divorce proceedings. And it's like, man, you are so overwhelmed and overworked. You need to just go home, get some therapy. Don't be with kids for two weeks and certainly don't bring that into the classroom because there's no way it's not just sort of wrecking the teaching environment. Oh yeah. And, and uh, to say that sounds a little insensitive to the individual in question. I have tremendous empathy for them. But you only get, you know, 38 weeks or 40 weeks with these kids and it can't be, well, here's six weeks down the drain because I am overwhelmed by having class sizes that are too huge. Plus, I have personal life things getting in the way. Plus, we haven't bought new textbooks in seven years and, uh, you know, we don't have enough books for everybody in the class. Plus, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the tenets of what we try and do at Music Serving the Word Ministries is we commonly talk about trying to put people in a position to succeed. I don't think we always put our teachers in a position to succeed uh, through resources, through support, and so forth. I remember uh, hearing that you wouldn't expect an engineer going to work for Intel to like, hey, man, we're glad to have you on the team. We've just hired you. By the way, you're going to need to provide all your uh, circuit boards when we're on the assembly line. And we do that to teachers. It's like, hey, we're glad we've hired you to the district. Love to have you. That's awesome. Um, No, we don't have money for school supplies. So you are either going to have to beg all the parents to bring in dry erase markers and pencils and this and that and this and that, or you're going to have to pay for it out of your own pocket. We don't do that in other sectors. And I question why we do that in education. That does not set the teacher up to succeed. And so if they feel undervalued at work, and then they have something that isn't going great in their personal life, (laughs) then that's all going to come out. And what does that lead to? That leads to a cycle of young people who don't have intellectual curiosity because they weren't inspired by awesome teachers. They just kind of had to trudge through and survive, you know, suboptimal teaching going on with someone who's at a, a bad point in their life. We need to put 
people in a position to succeed, and whether that's the teachers or the students, it's ultimately incumbent on, I'll move up the food chain, principals, uh, district superintendents, school boards, legislatures, and then every parent who gets to vote on a levy or additional bill for educational funding. We need to put the burden on them to help students succeed, to help them gain experience with things that will challenge them into growth with confidence, growth in uh, intellectual curiosity, growth in creativity, things that will help them in life. I think by making the short-term investment in someone when they're 16, we'll probably have to have less money given over to incarcerating people when they're 40. You know, there are so many studies that show a more educated population earns more money. So even if we kept a flat income tax rate, if people around us were more educated, then more corporations, more factories, more more companies are going to move in to take advantage of that base of potential employees to work for that company. And suddenly everyone's making more money and then there's more taxes and people don't have to complain about taxes because it's a broader tax base that we all might contribute slightly less to. And it does sound like I'm going to go political here. So I'm going to back away from that very quickly. Uh, The bottom line is uh, there are tremendous, well-articulated studies that show a direct correlation between the level of uh, education of a population and its success economically, its success as citizens. And by that, I mean being, you know, quality citizens and not criminals, um, and other forms of success for a community. So I think that's something that we really need to strive for, whatever one's uh, political party, whatever one's, uh, you know, persuasions on any front. Um, we, we need to think about how are we funding K-12 through education, and then how are those funds being implemented? Are, are they all going to STEM-type courses? Um, does that kick English and social studies to the curb as well? Um, so we need to think about those things and be willing to have a robust dialogue on it. So to turn it all the way back to the initial uh, question, I think it's important that there be an open dialogue. And I, I would hope that most school administrators don't come into the process with their own lack of intellectual curiosity. Like, right. I know everything I need to know. Let's just get this done. No, be open to dialogue with your arts faculty. Be open to dialogue with your English or your foreign language faculty or your golf coach. I don't care, but be open to dialogue with everybody because if we think we already have all the answers we need, that's pretty much the end of education right there. I, Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I think uh, just... The whole ladder, I guess, just needs to be a little bit um, changed and restructured. The idea of putting people in a place for success uh, is absolutely crucial. I've said it for years, and I still believe it to this day. If an individual is not in a place where they're good with themselves, they're not going to be able to help anybody else. Right. You know, and so the idea that teachers are overworked, stress, anxiety, obviously life factors like divorce can play into all of that as well. There needs to be things in place that they can take advantage of to help uh, either relieve them of some of that stuff so that they can focus on, sure, a life factor like divorce or uh, whatever that means. But that also, in doing that, there needs to just be the understanding that that also helps the student because it puts someone in front of the student who is completely present. 
and completely able to help them get to where they're trying to go. Um, so yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that needs to be just a, a total rework from the top down. And I'd love to see just, uh, you know, the American community, I guess, just mm-hmm. become more invested into education. I think it's absolutely critical to move forward as a society. Right. And maybe edu- education now doesn't look like what it did in 1950 or whatever, you know, like it, it could be different. I don't know. But uh, I think just the the active investment, involvement, the willingness to change, to, to start to explore some of these different ideas. Um, yeah, I just, I think that needs to be a huge movement going forward. I agree. And I, for what you just said, the willingness to change is maybe the most critical thing from my perspective. It's easy. One's job is easier if you can teach next year what you just taught this year. As an administrator, your job is easier if you're like, everybody gets the same funding by percentage Mm -hmm. as you did last year. Right. Right. Oh, the state is giving us 3% more money or 5% less money and everybody's budget goes up by 3% or everybody's budget goes down by 5%. Right. Um, it's easy just to stay the course, but you have to be open to change. And I have found that uh, from my time in academia teaching at the collegiate level, trying to change a curricula is like trying to get the Titanic to miss the iceberg. You cannot turn a luxury liner on a dime. And the thing is so huge and so many people dig in their heels and get uh, uh, panicky that their life is going to get harder right. because they have to redo stuff. That's just kind of sad. You know, I, I ended the previous thing I said with, well, that's the end of education. And I feel that that's true. And, and educators can be to blame for that, too, if they're like, nope, I don't need to update my curricula. You know, I know what right. I'm teaching. And suddenly... 30 years into a a teaching career, you're teaching stuff that isn't necessarily relevant to the students anymore, but it sure was when you were 21 and graduating from ASU. Um, So I get get a little concerned about that, uh, to to just mention it in the world of of academia. I think we need to rethink what music degrees are going to be like because we're putting students out out into the world with music degrees I'll stay away from the music education degree for a moment. Um, Let me talk about other forms of music degrees. We're putting people out in the world as though it's 1960 or it's 1975. But there's already enough orchestral musicians out there. It isn't like they keep opening up more and more symphony jobs. Some symphonies have shuttered their doors. Some symphonies have shortened their seasons. So people aren't moving around as much like, oh, well, I was in St. Louis, but I'm going to go do the Cleveland Orchestra now and and try and win that audition. People are happy to have gigs. People are lucky to have gigs. And they don't get as many opportunities to move around as used to be the case. The issue for me is we continue to put people out on a conservatory model as though there's an endless sea, an endless ocean of symphony gigs and string quartet gigs and, you know, as though the Woody Herman and Stan Kenton and Maynard Ferguson and Buddy Rich and Duke Ellington and Count Basie big bands are still touring the United States as they may have in the 60s and 70s. You know, I say that from the jazz performance major side. It's not true. So... Why isn't 
music business, music technology, music entrepreneurship. Why isn't that a bigger part of any music degree? And again, I'm separating music ed from that. I'm talking more music performance, jazz performance. Uh, uh, we could even head into composition and, and jazz composition degrees. Those things need to be a part of a young person's education so that when they're 21 and they walk out the door of a four-year institution, they are able to hang their digital shingle out for the universe to see and hopefully make money in the field that they've chosen and that they love. But in order to get all these music technology, music entrepreneurship, music industry or business courses into a curriculum, other things would have to go. And that fills a music history professor, a musicology professor, a music theory professor. It fills their heart with panic. That, right. wait, I, I, I don't get to teach my uh, two- or three-year cycle of music theory anymore? Nope. That's what I was hired to do. That's what I'm teaching. And every faculty meeting where curricular redesign comes up, they will dig in their heels and they will stop it. And I have seen that at three different institutions I taught at. And there really are some gatekeeper fac faculty who don't want change. But that only serves themselves, and that's tremendously selfish. And I'm happy to go on the record as saying, that's selfish. You need to do what's best, not for a 20-year-old in 1960. You need to do what's best for a 20-year-old in 2020. And the curriculum needs to reflect that. And if you choose to go to a school as, a, as an 18-year-old, if you choose to go to a university that isn't willing to play ball with the times, you are going to have a difficult time making a career in music when you're 22 and out the door of that institution. No, I completely agree with that. And, and probably something I would add just to that as well uh, is just um, don't get wrapped into the mentality of this is what I did, so this is what my students need to do. Right. There's a, there's a huge um, pitfall in that whole kind of dynamic and it and it purely is exactly what you just explained that um although what you did when you were in education in 60s 70s 80s 90s whenever that may have been that is not necessarily what is effective and meaningful today in 2020 right you know and and i keep you know I keep coming back to this idea of just we have to be willing to change. We have to keep educating ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. I, I am a huge advocate of uh, what's the acronym? Key, I believe. Keep edu ed educating yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just, that is so imperative. I, I don't think in any aspect throughout the rest of my life, I'm ever going to stop trying to educate myself to learn the new forms of how things are done to be able to, to move and be more effective in the current landscape of things. Um, I, I've never actually thought about it this way, but what you said is actually extremely meaningful. I think music in the landscape that it is right now, it's not less meaningful, but it's just different. Right. We're not going to have gigs. You're not going to be going and playing music every Friday night, every Saturday night, every whatever throughout the week. As a working band, yeah. yeah. There's, there's few and fewer working bands, as it were. Exactly. So that's, that is a, a lifestyle that is not necessarily achievable. But what you suggested, I think, is something where you can still obtain value in something that you love and you have passion for. But it just adds the other elements into it that are 
the needed elements to be successful. Business education, specifically in music, um, entrepreneurship, you know, um, things like that. And, and honestly, I would even put in these days uh, audio recording. Sure, you know, yeah, understand how to mix your music. You know, I I work in the media industry now. Um, the the amount of needed recorded music for video is growing, and that's not going to stop anytime soon. You know, so being able to put out material for uh, licensing that right. you know media companies could take and things like that. All that takes is an understanding. How do you record it, and what's the business side of that? You know, it still allows you to be a musician to to be able to have a, a life that you enjoy and do your passion in. But it doesn't look like what it was in 1960. So, yeah, I think just um, for educators that needs to be crucial for anybody in education. Now, if you are at school right now, remember that keep on educating yourself. It doesn't stop when you get your degree, right? Um, and, and just yeah, uh, just. We got the willingness to change. I'm, I I think that's just the my preach word for to today is willingness to change. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'll, can I use that as a pivot to talk about a couple of teachers from my background? Yeah, please. Okay. So I in the 1980s I did my undergrad degree at the Eastman School of Music. Primary instrument was classical piano because at that point Eastman did not have an undergraduate jazz program. And uh, my degree was actually in music theory. So uh, earlier in this podcast, it seemed like I might have taken a shot at music theorists, but I am myself a music theorist. And uh, that, I think, has helped me tremendously as a jazz pianist, improviser, composer, arranger. So again, not anti-theory. I am anti-gatekeepers. And uh, Totally. Yeah. So, But I'll pivot from there to talk about my undergrad experience at Eastman. My classical piano teacher was hired by Eastman in 1945, and I was studying with him from 1982 to 1986. I played no music with him that was probably after 1910. I might have got a little bit of Debussy out of him. What does that mean? To me, that means he had no interest in keeping current in classical piano repertoire. He's long deceased. You aren't going to find his name without going to find an Eastman yearbook from 1985, so I don't feel bad about sullying his legacy. Um, The bottom line is this guy did not keep up to date on stuff, and he just kind of phoned in lessons. I had no idea. Just thought, oh, he's Eastman faculty. He must be great. Well, he was okay. He wasn't great, and he certainly didn't keep current. And so what I think went on with him is he probably taught exactly the way he was taught, and he taught the repertoire that he was taught. But let's filter this through because he retired as I finished my undergrad degree. So he was at Eastman from 45 to 86. Okay, what if he got his degree from a pianist who was also 60 years old when he was teaching my teacher. Now you go back to what was cutting edge in 1905. So if my teacher did not update anything in his teaching, which I don't feel he really did, there'd be some lessons he'd say 10 to 12 words to me the entire lesson. And that's not an exaggeration. I'd play and I'd get next if it was okay, 
or I'd get him tapping words that were in the score and saying them back to me like I didn't do it enough. Uh, it might say Parlando Rubato, and he'd tap the music and be like, Parlando Rubato. And it's like, okay, how is that different from regular Rubato? I'm a dairy farmer's son. I have no earthly idea. And at this point, I don't even know that I can go find a dictionary of music in the Sibley Music <laughs> Library. But he just taps it and he goes, Parlando Rubato. And it's like, okay, great. This is great teaching here, sport. Thanks. Um, bottom line is I was getting taught like he was taught in 1905 because he did not keep current with anything, including repertoire. And so that's, you know, that's a weakness as a teacher. And that gets, that's just intellectual laziness as opposed to intellectual curiosity. And I don't mind calling people out on that. I used to be more polite about that. I'm mid-50s now. Life is too short. I'm not going to smile and nod at selfish mediocrity. He just had a gig and he's like, yep, this is going to be a steady paycheck. I'm going to do as little teaching as I can and uh, do as little concertizing as I can and keep my office. Well, that that's not cool. Sorry, brother. Yeah. You've been dead for decades, but it's not cool. So let me flip it. Instead, let me use a positive role model. I studied with Rayburn Wright as both an undergrad and a grad student. Ray Wright um, is the de facto founder of Geo Studies at Eastman. He uh, is not the official founder, but the program finally flourished and grew in a real substantial way under his uh, leadership. He had previously been the music director and uh, conductor at Radio City Music Hall and then came up to Eastman to teach arranging courses and uh, pedagogy courses and, and, and lessons at Eastman. Um, and he was the best teacher I ever had in my life. And one of the things I really admired about Ray was that Okay, keep educating yourself. He kept current. He in in the eighties, he was on the front edge of sampling, learning how a sampling synthesizer worked. And this oh, wow. is in the days where you're pushing a floppy disk right. into the computer. He was totally into samplers. He was like trying to learn this stuff. Uh, he kept current on film scoring techniques. His last major work was a, a book entitled On the Track, track meaning soundtrack. And it was it was interviews and oh, okay. with film scorers and looks at excerpts from film scores and just, you know, he tried to stay cutting edge to the end of his life. The thing that I loved most about Rayburn Wright, and there were many things I loved about Rayburn Wright, but the thing I loved most about him was that he helped everybody get better at whatever they wanted to do. So he didn't put out a studio full of mini Rayburn Wrights. If somebody wanted to get good at orchestrating, for like, let's say Broadway shows. Well, that was, you know, right down Ray's, uh, uh, you know, the, his, his strongest path because he'd done that at Radio City Music Hall. So there was an undergrad when I was there who was a French hornist. I don't think he was a composition major. I thought he was a French horn performance major. But later on, because he studied with Ray and he really wanted to do Broadway orchestrating, he was orchestrating Disney shows on Broadway. Wow, And this is a guy who, to my knowledge, based on how much his output was as a composer, it wasn't even something he really did. But he studied with Ray and he got there. Uh, Joel McNeely was there as a grad student when I was an undergrad. Uh, Joel has been a TV and film scorer for the better part of probably 35 years. He studied with Ray and he knew he wanted to move to L.A. and get into film scoring. And Ray helped him down that path. Ray helped Maria Schneider become one of the best jazz composers 
um, the world has seen. Uh, her, her works for her own jazz orchestra and then in projects with other ensembles are, are state of the art. Ray helped her at the highest level of art music, but he could also help someone who wanted to write jingles, you know, write effective jingles. Right. So the breadth of his scholarship was vast, and he could take little subsets, little facets or shards of the totality of what he knew, and he would help somebody get better in their own voice. And that's a stunning and remarkable skill, and it demanded that he keep current all the time, and he did. We brought in Michael Brecker when I was there, and, and Ray was you know, interested that Michael Brecker had started recording with that uh, Iwi, the electronic wind oh, instrument. Oh, that was the fusion. That was the Brecker yeah. brothers in the fusion era. Right, and where he had this thing where he could control synthesizers, but he could control it through a wind instrument that had the same fingerings as saxophone. Right. And I remember that Brecker did not bring any other instruments to Eastman. He only brought his tenor sax, and there was modest like, oh, that's too bad, because you know, on a recent Steps Ahead album, he'd recorded on Iwi and soprano sax and tenor sax, right. and he showed up as a tenor saxophonist. But And he was remarkable, let me be clear. That was awesome, and he was formidable. But I know that, you know, Ray had interest in all these things. Like I mentioned, you know, he was he was on the front edge of uh, of sequencing and and uh, and and sampling um, as those things were just beginning in the 80s. So he always tried to keep current and that expanded his skill set because he was so intellectually curious and and that allowed him to meet people where they were and help them get better on the path they wanted to get on. So you don't really see Ray Wright disciples who compose and arrange like Ray Wright. You see Maria Schneider, who writes in Maria Schneider's voice, and Paul Ferguson, who writes in Paul Ferguson's voice, and on and on. And I think that was a great gift he gave. And it's a gift that continues. He died in 1990, and his name still comes up all the time when I get together with Eastman people. I was recently at the Gen Conference in New Orleans, and and Ray Wright and his legacy came up a number of times with a number of different people, some of whom had the privilege of studying with Ray Wright, like my friend Dave Ravello, who was in the final graduating class of Ray Wright's, and some of whom never studied with Ray Wright, um, but who are aware of his legacy and his impact on that school. Um, I met a couple of then current students, Gabe Condon, a, a guitarist, and Alexa Tarantino, then an alto saxophone student at Eastman back in 2012 when there was a tribute concert for Rayburn Wright that I was involved in. And just this month, I saw Gabe, Gabe Condon give an amazing uh, presentation at the Gen Conference on the intersection of jazz and hip-hop, and it was phenomenal. And just last night, I saw Alexa Tarantino conduct Arizona All-State Jazz Ensemble One, which Aboda puts on to uh, kick off the AMEA Festival. And she was phenomenal. And I just think, yeah, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're part of that legacy that Ray Wright started, which comes from expansive growth, creative thinking, and intellectual curiosity to get better in your own personal voice. And I think Ray really established a stunning tradition at Eastman along those lines. Well, and I think uh, just something, and, and I would I did not know Ray Wright, so I'm going to make an assumption here, but I, th- I think it's also a self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the key things about understanding about being able to know that these are 
modern times that you need to keep progressing, that you need to develop your your processes and move forward is also being self-aware that I came from a different place. I was born a different time and that things change and things move forward. You know, I uh, this is kind of a weird comparison, but it, it, it always kind of puts things into perspective for me. Um, vintage cars, classic cars to be able to actually qualify for a classic car license, the beautiful gold plate license thing, your car has to be at a minimum of 20 years old. Well, it puts it into perspective now being a 30-year-old right. that my 1998 Chevy Suburban is now a classic car, <laughs> which is fine. I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. Definitely makes me feel a little old. But it just puts it into perspective that time is uh, kind of uh, established differently for different mediums but you have to be aware of that you know um i'm in film and photography most cameras last five years technology is even quicker than that 18 months even 12 months for some things you know and so there's just you need to just be aware and be okay with that things change you know uh i i think about uh pop music i've heard a lot uh a reluctance to play what people called pop music Mm -hmm. But realistically, it's not pop music. It, it's music that was popular at a time where you were learning music, maybe. Right. Um, but realistically, that's now classical music to some people. You know, I, I think about twenty-year-olds in the NFL now, and uh, you know, young people on social media and all that stuff. They never knew a time without internet or cell phones. I knew that barely. I, I lived right on the front end of the whole internet boom, so I knew that lifestyle barely. Right. You know, but there there's a lot of young people these days who functionally do not understand life without social media, without internet, without cell phones, and so it's just it's just understanding that you know um, the the Backstreet Boys, the the Britney Spears, and all that stuff. Yes, that was pop music in the '90s when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's also to some degree a little bit of a classical music. And you know, I've heard great interpretations of uh, jazz compositions that take that music and change it and, and right. put a a jazz arrangement around that. But it's nostalgic to me. It's meaningful to me. It, it still has meaning, you know. But I think it does. It grows into that thing of just understanding that body and soul. One of the greatest tenor saxophone songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Love Coltrane's interpretation mm-hmm. of it. All of that stuff. It might. It might be a little bit of a dated song today. Mm-hmm. Kids may not know uh, or understand that time period well enough to really relate to that music well. You or know. or with uh, an immediate enthusiasm, right? It'll right. Take, it'll take time to appreciate the deep value of that piece, but you have to be immersed in that language and kind of retroactively get your head back inside a whole era of music in order to appreciate how great right. Coltrane is when he's playing a standard. You have to. Mm-hmm. Value and understand the music of Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter, Richard Rogers, Jerome Kern, and on and on. You kind of have to get familiar with the American songbook to understand why would Coltrane's treatment of a particular American songbook right. tune be so particularly outstanding. I've always loved Coltrane's treatment of uh, But Not For Me. Uh, a Gershwin tune, and 
I have great admiration for that, but I think you kind of have to understand, but not for me, in its native habitat Mm -hmm. to then understand why Coltrane's version of it is so particularly phenomenal. Right. No, and I I, I think that understanding that kind of lineage, people just have to know and understand the the history, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's just history continues to move forward. And so it's just how do you relate with young students you know, it's understanding that their history is not necessarily yours, you know? Right. It, like like you said with your, your former teacher that like, yes, you know, you lived through the 60s or the 70s or, or, or whatever that might have been. But it's also understanding that your students are now living in it. They grew up differently. Right. They grew up through a different time. The, the medium of speaking, the, the, the way in which people interact, all of that is different now. And, and I think really trying to capture that and develop curriculum around that in ways that's meaningful to those students, you know, that, that might get excitement. That might be a way for them to explore uh, music with excitement rather than, oh, you know, I'm playing this music, it's really old and I don't understand or know it. Right. I don't know if that it, that doesn't show the value of those those pieces. You know, I think back to all the music you just, you know, Gershwin and Coltrane and, and everything, that music is still valuable today. Right. But you have to get people in a mindset that they can start to understand why. Right. Like, why is that valuable? What what made that valuable? Why do I want to learn that that's valuable? Right. You know, and so there is there is a progression that can happen there where if you can show why music that is valuable to them that they know is valuable, you know, if you can say like, oh, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I love 90s music. It's totally nostalgic for me. If you can relate to them in a way that says, okay, why is this meaningful to you? Well, you know, nostalgia and it just was really poppy. It evokes a feeling and a meaning and all of that stuff. And it's like, well, you see this, you know, like that was original, that was influenced by this. And let's go back. Let's learn that progression. Let's, let's take all that stuff. And I just, yeah, I, I just think about that. I think there's, there's meaningful ways to start to progress through music. And it does just it again, willingness to change it's, it's the, as Ray Wright did, it's the mm-hmm. willingness to learn samplers, to learn new things, to to try and, and teach and evoke emotion in a new way with the students, so that they they fully know and can kind of uh, ingest that information effectively. Right, I I totally agree with that, and I feel like you've, in some ways, you've uh, created a, a dichotomy in my mind between the two teachers at Eastman I was talking about. Uh, Again, my uh, I'll keep him anonymous, but my piano teacher, if we extrapolate, you know, if he studied with his primary teacher, which I suspect he did when that teacher was an old, older man, a more veteran man, and I, I can assume man in this case because we're talking the 1800s turning into the 1900s. Totally. And I don't think that's a gender insensitive thing to say. Um, If he was studying with a guy who was already 60-something, and so he only got music up through 1905, and that's how he taught me. Think about this for a second. What if that's how I was teaching my students if I had gone on to teach classical piano instead of jazz studies? That means I'd be teaching my piano students music through 1905, and it's 2020. Um, There's something really awful about that there's something terrible that 
that, you know, in two generations of teachers, once you expand it out to teacher in his or her 60s and then their student when they're a teacher in their 60s and then to me as a teacher in my mid-50s, soon to be in my 60s, to not keep current is a massive dereliction of duty if you're going to be an educator. Um, so Ray Wright, yeah, he, he did want to play ball in, in those ways and uh, stay up to date to be the best teacher he could. I remember he self-published a click track book. A click track book is uh, this thing where it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but at every possible tempo, it gives you a timing for a beat. So at quarter note equals 80, you know, the fourth beat of the 16th bar is going to be the 64th beat, and it will give you a clock time for that. And it's this massive book he had created, uh, working with another faculty member who was good at math to, to sort of auto-generate, um, and it helped film scoring. So if you decide, oh, this is the tempo of the cue I'm writing for this piece of music, or it's let's say it's a chase scene and we've got to have more uh, exciting music. Well, maybe there's some things you want to catch musically based on how many frames it is until it gets to this thing. Right. Right. So you have to time music to uh, uh, the events on a screen. So you would use a click track book and then musicians would record to a click and uh, you've often seen um, – you know, hey, here they are recording the Harry Potter score. Here's John Williams recording some Star Wars stuff. And all those musicians are wearing headphones. They're not necessarily wearing headphones for a mix because if it's an orchestral thing, we know that we can go see a symphony orchestra concert in, in a major concert hall and nobody's wearing headphones. They can all hear each other just fine and follow the conductor. So a lot of times, unless there's rhythm section instruments involved or or, or pre-recorded singing or something else. Um, they're wearing headphones because they need to stay to a click. And so that's what the click track book did. And then the late 80s came around and boom, immediately negated the existence for that as somebody came up with a program that could do that. And then later on, the ability to do dilation of time and like, well, I wanted this chord to strike just at the gunshot, but I sort of messed up. Well, that's okay. We can stretch your stretch music it, out yep. with a digital editor. And, and so in some ways, it isn't even really that important anymore. We can play games with the audio tracks on, on an audio workstation very easily uh, in the editing stage. And so that whole thing went away. And he had put a ton of work into this. But he isn't grumpy about it, you know. It's just like, okay, well, now my whole click track book that was buried, you know, it, well, it was a separate book and then a, a different version of it appeared in his On the Track book. By the end of his life, it was completely irrelevant. And he's just like, yeah, okay, well, good. Computers are fast enough and smart enough to do that now, whatever. And he was, he was open to change. And uh, I really admire that and try to maintain some of that myself. I think one of the ways I try to try to reflect an openness to change is that I think about musicians who are younger than me, and I think about ways that they might influence the way I play piano. Um, I think about V.J. Iyer, a pianist I admire greatly. I don't know how old he is, but I would guess he's about 15 years younger than me. 
And there's no reason for me to think I should only be influenced by Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock because they're older than me. Why wouldn't I want to be open to be influenced by younger musicians? So I, I think about those things and that it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like the video game Frogger where lanes are going <laughs> at different speeds, right? Again, my childhood. <laughs> there you go. Hey, good. Awesome. So, and these lanes are going at different speeds. And honestly, I'm getting later in life and my lane seems to be going kind of fast. So I can jump backwards on a lane that's moving slower and learn something from VJI or I don't just have to learn from musicians who've been long dead, like Art Tatum or Bud Powell. I can, I can learn from living legends who are older than me, like Herbie, like Chick Corea, like Keith Jarrett. Or I can continue to learn from people behind me, like John Hollenbeck, Matt Mitchell, uh, and, and the, uh, the aforementioned VJ Iyer. There's a lot to learn, and you just need to be open to it. And I think if I have some of that openness, I can attribute it to Rayburn Wright. No, man, I find that like really interesting. I, I think it's so crucial and imperative to um, have that kind of perspective, you know, to be able to, to look obviously forward and and see the meaningful people in front of us, um, you know, but also, you know, to be able to to look backward. And as we age, you know, the the scopes of those two things start to change a little bit. Right. I ha- you know, I I have uh I'm kind of middle age, I guess, right now. So I kind of have a like very equal, early, early, early middle age. Yeah. I, I kind of have the the both perspective right now. I right. look forward as well as those who are killing the game younger than me. And um I just think it's really important to just always have that perspective. Um so yeah, I just I think uh not just for any musicians or band directors out there listening, I think uh anybody that is a huge note just if you're artistic, if you're driven, if you're in business, I don't care. Just uh, having that perspective is really cool. Um, I would like to kind of swing around. Uh, we started in the adjudication world. Sure. Um, and I kind of want to swing back around to that. Um, we're in we're in kind of the uh, competition season. Uh, you're uh, not only a master educator, but you're a part of many adjudication boards and um, just the panels that are kind of doing a lot of that stuff for this season going forward. Um, are there th- some things that you can talk to band directors and educators about being in that position that um, could just be helpful, could be suggestions to give them uh, just a good next step for them in their education process? Yeah, I think the... There's a commonality I see in bands when I serve as an adjudicator for area or state jazz festivals or when I go do stuff out of state. Later this year, I'll be heading up to Durango, Colorado and adjudicating a jazz festival there uh, with high school bands. And there's a commonality between a lot of bands in that they play in parallel. And what I mean by that is at the most surfacey level, they're playing together. They keep generally the same tempo. They don't get lost in the form. So bar one is bar one for everybody. And the final bar 297 is bar 297 for everybody. And they've all achieved simpatico in playing together at a very surfacey level. But they don't really play together. They play in parallel. What do I mean? I mean, there's no connection, no... uh 
spontaneous interaction, no communication between the players. Uh, earlier, we'd been talking about a click track, and it's like they just played a Sammy Nestico big band chart, everybody recording one at a time over the span of three days to a click track. So everybody's playing together, but there's no communication. And so a lot of times I feel like that is driven by uh, a priority scheme where the eyes are more important than the ears. And we need to work with young people, young musicians, and be sure that their ears are more important than their eyes as far as playing together. They need to be actively listening at all times, not passively listening, but actively listening to see if there are opportunities to interact, to see if there are opportunities where they need to make adjustments like, oh, I'm sticking out, I need to play a little softer, or, oh, I landed on this whole note where I have time to adjust the pitch if it's out of tune. And it's like, oh, man, I sound sharp. Okay, I need to lip that down. Um, a lot of times people just use their eyes and then muscle memory like, oh, F sharp on my sax. That's uh, three fingers in my left hand and the middle finger in the right hand. Now I just blow real hard poof, F sharp. And it's like, okay, great. But does it sound good with the group? Is it in tune? Is it too soft for the chord? Is it too loud with the chord? But if it's just driven by the eyeballs and then regurgitating it with muscle memory, that's not making music. I feel like that's, you know, that's creating competent sounds, but it's not making music together. So for me, it's a communication aspect where the ears are more important than the eyes. You don't play in parallel. You actually play together. So if an improvising soloist uses the same little rhythmic rhythmic motif, maybe three times in a row, you know, they just do something like that. Good Lord, at some point, somebody on guitar or piano or drums ought to have a little bit of a conversation with that person. Oh, they're doing something with some interesting repetition to it. Maybe I can start a dialogue with them instead of the rhythm section being this live version of a Jamie Aversold play-along recording. To me, I want to hear that every time your group plays cute or every time your group plays morning reverend or every time your group plays an Ellington or Strayhorn classic like uh, Bagatelle, my current uh, out-of-print Strayhorn fave that I'm begging publishers out there to get back in front of uh, band directors. Um, anytime a, a group plays something like that, it should sound spontaneous and alive and not just competently executed. And so I think we aim too low when our goals are just get the notes right and get the rhythms right. Because as I've said before, uh, on multiple occasions, I feel like, no, 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 that's the point at which making music starts. You have to assume people will get the rhythms right and the notes right. And I think some young people, perhaps uh, having their their frame of reference determined by their band director, they think that's where music, making music ends. And I'm in the opposite uh, view there. That's where making music starts. So we get to have the spontaneous freedom once we've mastered the music itself. Um, so for me, it's got to be ears over eyes. You don't just play what's on the page, but you play what's on the page filtered through responding to the other musicians. I think that's 
extremely insightful and just uh, crucial. I mean, I, I just think back to my like kind of band playing days and I, I've been guilty of that. You know, I've, sure. I've played in parallel that phrase. I think just, uh, I've never thought a bit about it that way, but that that's exactly what it was. It wasn't, uh, I, yeah, I guess it wasn't an actual active listening experience with my group. There's other times that I can think back to and it was, you know, and, and I, the correlation with that is actually more fun in playing, you know, you feel like you're connected with the people that you're playing with, which is actually really fun. So, um, yeah, I just, I think that's, uh, really good, insightful things. Just the, like, it's not all about the eyes. It's not all about what's on paper. Like, you know, music is a language, you know, you're having a conversation and a dialogue with people. It's called the universal language for a reason, you know? So I just, I love that idea. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I'm not, offering that as an indictment of, you know, teenagers playing music. I'm not offering it as an indictment of band directors. But I guess I am offering it as an encouragement for consideration of what could make the music more vibrant, more vital, more alive in the moment. And I think, yes, communication, spontaneity, that matters. And that is the sort of thing that's going to engage an audience So if we're going to, let's turn it over to marching band or drum corps terms. There's always GE scores, general effect scores. We don't really have a GE score when we're uh, evaluating a jazz ensemble as far as a formal category. But you know it when you see it. Yeah. You know it when you hear it, that a group has really engaged the audience or a soloist has blown your mind like, oh, this 16-year-old is capable of that and everybody is drawn in. And those moments don't happen with one person being incredibly hip and 18 other people being competent. That happens because all 19 people play together as a group. They communicate. They they rise and they fall together in the intensity of the music and the sort of architectural drama of a piece of music that it's getting really exciting and now it's going to be chill. And and those ups and downs that take an audience on a musical journey, we really do sense that. And that comes not from everybody staring at a piece of music and putting their fingers over the right valves or keys at the right time and blowing and hitting the right partial. It isn't about that. It's about the deeper thing that happens when musicians are communicating with one another. So again, let me frame it as an encouragement. I'd encourage music educators to think about ways in which they can get their students to let the ears be more important than the eyes and to foster spontaneous communication when making music with one another so that every performance of three in one or Groove Merchant, you know, Thad Jones uh, charts, Every performance can be subtly different and have its own contour to it based on how the group is shaping and feeling it. I think that's an awesome thing. No, man, that's incredible. Um, I just thank you, man. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap us up and I just want to say thank you one for having me on the podcast and being willing to be the interviewee instead of the interviewer. Um, I think today's stuff has been super insightful and I just, um, I want to encourage any educators out there, uh, front staff and administration. We had a great conversation around that as well. Just, uh, take, uh, 
take this with open eyes, you know, take some of the stuff that was communicated today. I think you have extreme insight and value uh, to be able to just help uh, moving forward for those individuals. So um, I hope that they, they took something good with it. And uh, thank you to you. Well, thank you, Caleb. It's a lot of fun to sit on the other side of the desk, but I, uh, I look forward to being 180 degrees from where I am next month. So thanks for this privilege. Yeah. If you're interested in learning more about the Valley Jazz Cooperative, uh, please check out valleyjazz.org. The VJC Q&T is recorded in Tempe, Arizona, where in ears over eyes, conception accurately describes most drivers. Mm-hmm.